listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, or welcome for the first time, maybe, to the Lions of Liberty podcast, where I, your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare, along with some great guests, Strive to advance the ideas of liberty just as we do every single day on our website. Good friends, good contributors over at lionsofliberty.com. You can check us out there every single day. Be sure to connect with us there and on our social media, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty, twitter at lionsofliberty. Find us on Google+. Find us everywhere and join us. You're already listening. You may as well see what else we're doing. Now, I haven't mentioned this before on the show, but I actually started out as a journalism major in college. I found it interesting, the idea of getting your hands dirty, investigating something, really getting to the bottom of things. I wanted to be like Geraldo. <laughs> you know, I wanted to find Al Capone's vault, open it on up and see what's in there. Of course, in my version, I actually find the gold in the vault and all that, but you know, he tried, you know? What are you going to do? But you know, sometimes something sounds great in theory and it doesn't really work out that way in real life. You know, when I started to get into the grind of my college classes... I actually found a lot of my journalism classes a little drab, a little boring. I ended up diverting more into the TV and video production area, which is what I do now for my career. That's right, Lines of Liberty does not pay the bills. Not just yet, anyway. Of course, you can help by making purchases at Amazon through our Amazon banner on the right hand of our site. But I digress. Going back to journalism, you know, we often don't get real journalism nowadays a lot of the times from the mainstream media, from, you know, the CNNs, the Fox Newses. Seems we really just get a lot of puff pieces, a lot of parroting the official or government line on something. You know, I did pay attention to my journalism classes, at least in the beginning. One thing we learned about was the lapdog media versus the watchdog media. You know, the idea of the lapdog media is that they're there to just kind of parrot the line and just be friends with the government and just be there to, you know, let them know they're doing right. (laughs) The opposite of that, of course, is the watchdog media. That's kind of what journalism is supposed to be. Supposed to be keeping an eye not just on government, but on, on anything. On crimes of all sorts of natures. They're supposed to really investigate, and get to the bottom of things. Not worry about angering people or offending people. But in our kind of corporatist, crony capitalist, fascist system, the government has enabled certain media corporations to become extremely large to the point that they have blocked out a lot of their potential smaller competition. But ain't technology great? Because technology is changing things. With this new technology, with the internet, with social media... With the ability to buy a little laptop like I have here and a microphone, anybody can produce their own news and be their own journalist. Hey, boom! And this new media is changing things. We're seeing, finally starting to see, a lot of journalists go and do their own thing. Start their own project. You know, Glenn Greenwald, the guy who revealed the Edward Snowden revelations about the NSA spying on us, on the whole world. He's taken off and started his own media venture. Financed by Pierre Omanjar, the co-founder of eBay. Greenwald certainly got a great track record. So I hope for the best. And I hope for other people to be inspired to start their own independent journalistic outlets. 
And my guest today is one of the people that has done just that. He is an Emmy award-winning journalist, the former host and producer of the virally popular reality check segment for WXIX Fox in Cincinnati, Ohio. And of course I say former because he recently left that role to start his own project, The Truth in Media Project. Ben Swan, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Mark, thanks for having me on. Ben, I'm thrilled to have you here today, man. And more so, I'm thrilled that you have started your own project here with the Truth and Media Project. And I think you're really setting a great precedent for the direction of journalism going forward, kind of a move away from this corporatist media, the Fox News, CNNs, and MSNBCs of the world, and hopefully a shift more towards independent news outlets run by true investigative journalists such as yourself. So, Ben, how did you first get started doing all this? What first inspired you to become an investigative journalist? Well, actually, the story is not as captivating as one might think. I actually got into it because I needed a job. (laughs) I have three brothers. Yeah, three brothers who were news photographers. That's how I got into the business, was a news photographer and needed work. And one of them said, hey, we've got openings at our station for a shooter, if you're interested. And I had no interest in that because, as I said, it was kind of becoming like the family business and didn't want to do it, but decided to go ahead and give it a try. And then I really liked it. I liked the process. I liked being an editor, I like shooting video and, and storytelling. So I got into it that way. And then over the years, I got married and had a couple kids and decided I needed to make more money. And so moved from behind the camera to in front of the camera as a one-man band, a bureau chief, a morning anchor, and then a primetime anchor. So I had served and worked in pretty much every position in a newsroom. Now, I want to take a step back real quick to before you even got into journalism. And I know that you were homeschooled and doing my research before the show. I don't want to embarrass you or anything here, but I came across an article from 1998 by a guy named Benjamin Swan about something called accelerated education. Your mother, I guess, homeschooled all you guys. So can you get into your homeschooling a little bit and maybe just describe how that might have influenced your career and everything else? Maybe just your general beliefs going forward. Sure. Yeah, well, we were. We were all homeschooled. My parents had this belief that the public education system wasn't a good system to have their kids in, really believed that they should homeschool their kids. This all started in the early to mid-70s when they first started this process. I was born in 78. My older brothers and sisters, my parents had started homeschooling them. But at the time, homeschooling was illegal in the state of Texas, and that's where we lived, was in Texas. So my parents actually had to move across the state line into New Mexico in order for us to be homeschooled. So it's interesting because today, you know, there's what, anywhere from three to five million homeschool students in the United States. And most people are so familiar, at least with the term homeschooling or have heard of it, that it's not as surprising anymore. But at the time, very few people homeschooled. And it was seen as kind of a a radical, almost a separatist idea. Very strange people homeschooled their kids and didn't want them in a public school. And it was a very different atmosphere. It was very different legal atmosphere. There were a lot of states where you could not legally homeschool. And that, of course, changed over the years. In fact, my mom testified in a court case that ultimately legalized homeschooling in Texas. Wow. Now, I also read that you actually got your master's degree by the age of 16. Is that right? That is right. That's right. I graduated high school when I was 11. I was in college by the time I was 12. Graduated from college at 15 and then a master's by 16. But I will tell you, again, sometimes the story isn't as exciting as as it seems, because when you're 16 years old and you have a master's degree, any guess what you can do with that? (laughs) Not probably not too much. (laughs) Not too much. I was bagging groceries at 16 with a master's. So and that's not to downplay it, but I homeschool my kids. 
and we do not do it through an accelerated program. You know, we use the same correspondence programs that I went through so that my kids actually go to the same schools that I went to. But we are on a regular school calendar year just because it creates a lot of, I think, a lot of issues moving forward. Once you graduate, you spend so many years trying to explain to people your situation as opposed to just being able to get into the workforce. What would you say to people that will hear about homeschooling and they'll say, well, it might be a nice idea, but I don't want my kid to be antisocial. He's got to go to school to socialize, to play sports, to go to the prom, to all that stuff. What would you say to that criticism? I'm sure you've heard it a million times. Oh, absolutely. I would say that is the number one criticism of homeschooling is the socialization argument. What's funny about that, though, is it's such a tired argument because, you know, growing up, we were always told that. And I think you could you could make that case. A little bit easier. You know, when I was growing up, homeschool kids didn't have really any opportunities to play sports at all. I didn't get to play any kind of organized sports growing up. Probably my one my one big regret out of being homeschooled was that I never had a chance to do that because I was always very much an athlete. But I will say this, that, you know, we didn't know any other homeschool families growing up. I mean, we were so isolated and we just didn't have contact. Today, it's so different. It's so vastly different. You know, there's so many kids who are homeschooled. Homeschoolers are involved in many different programs. There are homeschoolers who play on sports teams that are in schools because as taxpayers, since we as homeschoolers don't get exempted from paying property taxes that go to school districts, there are a lot of homeschoolers who now play on those school district teams if they live in the district. There are homeschoolers who play on sports teams. My daughters play on a basketball team. It's an AAU team. And so they play against AAU teams who are from public schools and private schools, Catholic schools. So they're playing against everybody. Their entire team, by the way, is homeschoolers. What's interesting, too, is one of the big changes is we're now seeing kind of this, this shift take place of homeschool athletes who are getting college scholarships to go play for Division I schools. This year, there were four homeschool students, athletes, who got Division I scholarships. One of them is a female basketball player in Indiana, and I got a chance to see her play a couple of weeks ago at a tournament that I had taken my girls to. She was a phenomenal player. So the opportunities have greatly changed in terms of athletics, in terms of homeschool students finding ways to connect with other people. I will also say this. Anyone who tells you that in our current culture of kids with low self-esteem, with bullying, with all the issues that come along with being a kid these days, that a public school setting is only good socialization has their head in the sand. I mean, we have so many issues. Public school students, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I was in school, I mean, I wasn't necessarily a dork, but I mean, a lot of my time in school, I didn't really enjoy. I was bored by a lot of the classes. I got picked on a little bit. And most of the real friends I made were friends I made in my extracurricular activities. I was in Boy Scouts. I was on the wrestling team. And that's where I really made friends. And, you know, if you're homeschooling, you can still do all of that stuff. So there are certainly plenty of ways that people can still socialize. It always seemed like a silly argument to me that that's the only way you're ever going to make friends is in in stuffed in a classroom, you know. (laughs) And again, it goes back to what you just said. I mean, how many people who went to public school will tell you how terrible of an experience they had within those peer groups as opposed to, yeah, it was great. Right. And they certainly didn't teach me about a lot of important topics that I would go on to learn about later in life, like, you know, money, the Federal Reserve, the stuff like that, the kind of stuff I talk about, the kind of stuff both of us talk about in our projects. Now, back to your journalism career real quick. Can you touch on your time covering the drug war on the Mexican border? I think that was kind of like one of the first things you were working on back in Texas. Is that right? Yeah, I I was very, very much interested in that. 
I grew up on the border down in El Paso. I mentioned we lived in New Mexico, but we actually lived right at that border of El Paso and southern New Mexico and Juarez, Mexico. So it's really a a tri-state area. It's interesting because when you grow up there, the dynamics are so different than what people hear about. But in 2006, you know, I've been in journalism, broadcast journalism, eight years now. And this drug war started to break out across Mexico. And in 2007, it really came to the city of Juarez in a dramatic way. So through 2007, 2008, 2009, I really spent a lot of my time in Mexico covering the drug war, what was going on, really trying to bring attention to what was taking place. You know, because the story was not at all what national media was saying, was not at all what Mexican media was saying. And there were so many kind of sub stories there that were really important stories. Because I think when you're that close to it and you see how, you know, the meddling of our government and other government affairs and other nations, the people always lose. The individual on the street is always the loser in those situations because governments rarely take care of the individuals. They're always trying to move massive chess pieces. So what we saw happening in Mexico was this just incredible moment where the U.S. government seemed to be assisting in it. Certainly the Mexican military was assisting in it. The Mexican government seemed to be assisting in trying to create one super cartel. And as a result, you had tens of thousands of people dying across the country every year. You had a city of Juarez, which was the most violent city in the world at the time. And it was dramatically violent. I mean, you would drive over in the morning, there would be bodies, decapitated bodies hanging from overpasses. And it was an incredibly violent city as this was all taking place. So it really captivated me in terms of why was this happening and how to see it come to an end. But it was a really interesting time. Did covering that kind of help open your eyes a little bit to the fact that the media overall or the mainstream media overall don't always give you the full story? They don't go into things as much as maybe a a true investigative journalist might? Well, I think it certainly opened my eyes to the fact they didn't care what the truth of what was happening was. And, you know, as, as I covered what was going on there, you know, I spent a lot of time, I can't even tell you how many months in really over a year I spent constantly contacting the folks who were running networks and executive producers at networks and saying to them, hey, this is what's going on. I'm down here on the border. You know, this is what's happening on this story. This is what's happening on this story. And you guys are getting it wrong. You know, the way they were telling the story was just wrong. And I would get in touch with a few of these folks. And when I would, very rarely would they respond at all. But if they did, it was always a, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then it would never come through into what they were talking about in these national newscasts. There was a part of me that maybe was a little less cynical at the time and just thought, well, they're just uninformed. But the more you try to inform them and the less they pay attention, it's like, no, maybe it's something more than that. Maybe they have this almost predetermined script that they're going off of and they're not going to change it no matter what you say. Yeah, I mean, I started off as a journalism major in college, and you learned about two separate types of medias. There's what's known as the watchdog media, that's kind of like the investigative journalist, always looking in to uncover the truth about things. And then there's the lapdog media, which just is there to kind of promote the official line, promote whatever the government says, and that kind of thing. So do you think that our current media, you know, kind of more resembles that lapdog scenario? And then is that what you're trying to do the opposite with, with the Truth Media Project, be more of that watchdog? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very few people would say, even in journalism school, is that lapdog media to me represents, yes, media that seems to want to be friends with government, wants to be friends with whoever's in power at the time because it gives them access. But I think it's even more than that. I think it's 
also being a lapdog to advertisers, being a lapdog to folks who essentially are the money crowd and the big spenders. So they don't want to do anything that offends those folks. And it just seems like, you know, media, I guess people have this perception of journalism as being this kind of sterile environment where facts are disseminated. And when you have general managers and you have sales managers who really control content based upon the fact that an advertiser wouldn't like this story, and it happens in every newsroom from local newsrooms all the way up to the the national networks, that they do not do stories that are going to offend or upset advertisers. And that's just the way that it is. And if you don't believe that, then again, you're just convincing yourself of something that's not true. Now, Ben, you kind of first came to prominence, at least on the internet, and started going viral with your reality check segments. And this was during a time when the presidential primaries were pretty heated, and you caught the eye of a lot of the Ron Paul folks, the libertarian folks, because, you know, you seem to be, I guess, kind of the only one presenting, I guess, the real picture of what was going on in the primaries with delegate counts and stuff like that. So when did you first realize that your reality check segments were going viral? And, you know, why do you think that happened? Well, I first realized that, you know, when the first one really hit, what's amazing is in the past with television, it's a very slow process of gauging viewer interaction. Internet's very different, right? You can immediately gauge what people are interested in and response from people. And so, you know, when I started noticing that people were getting pretty fired up, a couple of things that are important to understand. Number one, I was never a Ron Paul supporter in the beginning. A lot of people think that I was a Ron Paul guy who also happened to be a news anchor and then started really pushing Ron Paul and it caught on. And it's actually the opposite. I didn't know anything about Ron Paul, but I was willing to talk about him. And I just did one story. It was one story called What's So Wrong with Ron Paul? It was a reality check. And basically the point of it was to say every one of these Republican candidates was getting a kind of a turn. I don't know if you remember, but Newt got a cycle and Rick Perry got a cycle and Rick Santorum got a cycle. Herman Cain, everybody was coming around and they had like 15 minutes where they were the star and then they disappear. But Ron Paul, who was polling really strong, wasn't getting that time. And so, you know, I just did a piece basically saying and we were covering all the candidates. I just did one about him saying, what's so wrong with Ron Paul? Why is this guy not getting attention? I mean, he's got some interesting ideas. And the very next day. You know, I had gone from having a thousand fans on Facebook to having 6,000 overnight. And I was like, what is this? (laughs) And who are these people? And why do they have black things over their eyes? Because everybody has this black thing over their eyes. And people were like, no, it's a black this out because media won't talk about him. And I was like, that's not true. As a response to the one debate where Ron Paul got, I think, something like nine seconds or 16 seconds in a 90-minute debate. Yeah, so there was a huge hoopla about that. Well, what's funny about that is the 89-second thing counted that. Because after this happened and people started talking to me about it, saying, you know, he doesn't get coverage, he doesn't get coverage. I was like, that's not true. And I started looking into it and I started noticing, hey, wait a minute, they aren't saying his name. Like when they'll read a poll and he's polling second, they'll say first did this, third did this, and they wouldn't say his name. I thought it was very strange. So then there was this debate and I was watching it. He was polling third at the time, I think, and got 89 seconds. And I actually was the one who counted that and reported on it and said, this guy got 89 seconds. And then Rick Santorum, who was polling like 12th, got five minutes and like 29 seconds. How does this guy get five minutes and 29 seconds to answer questions? And Ron Paul, who's polling so high, is stuck at the end of the stage and, and gets 89. And so is there something to this this idea? But yeah, it was pretty incredible to see how people responded. And then for me, it was just a, kind of a process of saying, you know, so what's happening? And it was less about Ron Paul for me than it was about these Republican voters who started being disenfranchised from state to state as they were attempting to, you know, work through the Republican process and really were just ripped off by the party. 
All right, and we'll be back after a quick break featuring the guy you're listening to right now, Ben Swan, with a truth and media moment. They're trying to turn off the water at NSA data collection centers. I'm Ben Swan with your Truth and Media Moment, brought to you in part by BenSwan.com. So who are they? Well, they are state legislators in states all over the country, Tennessee, Maryland, Arizona, and now even Utah, where the single largest NSA data collection entity is located. Now, remember I told you about this idea a couple of months ago. The idea is pretty simple, and it comes from the Tenth Amendment Center. States don't have to wait for Washington to act on the NSA because Washington isn't going to. Instead, create some state laws that block the NSA from using water and electricity in these states for their facilities. Well, some people said those ideas were ridiculous. And yet, there is legislation moving forward across the country to make this happen. I'll explain how it works after this. The destruction of constitutional liberties and endless foreign wars. The voice of the people silenced while lawmakers simply enrich themselves and the political class. I'm Ben Swan. It isn't about left versus right. No, the real fight is liberty versus tyranny. At BenSwan.com, we are breaking the left-right paradigm. We know that the American two-party system is broken and that to restore American liberty means to restore your rights as an individual. At BenSwan.com, we cover stories the national media won't touch, from the National Defense Authorization Act to nullification, militarization of police, and crony capitalism. We are not afraid to stand up for the rights of the people. We are the face of new media. BenSwan.com, where humanity is greater than politics. In 1975, Senator Frank Church warned that the power of the NSA could enable, quote, total tyranny, end quote. He recommended that Congress should limit the agency's power, but Congress hasn't. We all know that. But there are some brave state legislators who are attempting to do just that. A new bill introduced by state rep Mark Roberts seeks to do exactly that. The legislation organized by the 10th Amendment Center and the Bill of Rights Defense Committee, called Off Now Coalition, well, the Utah Fourth Amendment Protection Act expressly prohibits state material support, participation, and assistance to any federal agency that collects electronic data or metadata without a search warrant, quote, that particularly describes the person, the place, and the thing to be searched, and seized, end quote. Now, it's not going to be an easy fight, but in Utah, this would be a big one. As I told you, the NSA's Utah facility uses 1.7 million gallons of water a day. By blocking that water, the facility is done for. But remember, Utah can't do this alone. Tenth Amendment Center's Michael Bolden says that other states need to join the push, even those without NSA facilities. He calls it essential, and it is. For stories that affect your liberty, you can find me online at BenSwan.com, where humanity is greater than politics. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. And we're back again with the guy you were just listening to, Ben Swan. What do you think was behind all of that bias, the extreme bias, to the point of just being absolutely ridiculous censoring Ron Paul or downplaying Ron Paul or smearing Ron Paul. I mean, it's, do you think it was more of just a general, you know, we don't take this guy seriously. He seems like a kind of a kook. He's an old crazy guy talking about gold. Or I mean, is there something more sinister there? Or is there some kind of like top-down order that just tells the media to not cover this guy? What do you think's behind that? 
I don't know if it was a top-down order. I think certainly there's a lot of groupthink in journalism and television networks and local TV stations. And I think that the groupthink, the general groupthink, was that this guy is a kook. He's a whack job. He talks about crazy stuff. But I think even more than that, it was a fear because, remember, Ron Paul is not popular among lobbyists. Okay, They don't like this guy. And you hear over and over people talk about that during his career that lobbyists wouldn't even stop at his office because they knew there was no point. They no, just keep going. He's got no goodies to give out. That's right. He's, he's not going to play. Well, think about this. If, if lobbyists don't like him and want to smear him, and if advertisers control so much of what goes on networks because they're the ones with the advertising dollars, how much effect do lobbyists have not just over politicians but also over the media industry who would say we don't want this guy – you know, promote it. I don't know if it's necessarily one guy with a, you know, a black robe on someplace laughing methodically and, <laughs> and, and trying to control it. But I think there was just a general sense that this is not a guy we want. If you are in most industries and if you are a lobbying firm and you're representing a lot of companies, there are a lot of companies who want things to be different maybe in Washington. But for the most part, they have it pretty good. I mean, big lobbying groups or groups that have money to spend on lobbying really control the nation. So they control information and they control bills, they control laws. And so even though things could always be better for them, things are pretty good for them. And I think the general consensus was this guy is would blow up a lot of the, these things. And so we don't want him. So, Ben, you're there at WXIX in Cincinnati. You got a reality check segment. It's going seemingly great, especially with your viral popularity. You even went on, you know, after the campaign to do some great work. I think you're one of the only reporters that I ever saw confront directly confront President Obama regarding his secret kill list. I thought that was fantastic journalism. What prompted you to, I guess, leave that position, you know, throw caution to the wind and take the big risk and start your own project with the Truth and Media Project? Well, the idea was pretty simple. I mean, it just came down to this idea that the station, you know, was doing extremely well. We went from being virtually a last place station to being number one in all the demos. We had grown tremendously. We had a great following. Everything was good. But the station leadership said, look, we want to focus on local Cincinnati stuff. We don't want to talk about these bigger things like kill lists and constitutional rights. We just don't want to talk about those things. And we want you to focus on things like, you know, streetcars and, and bus routes. <laughs> we need a story and on Sal's Deli down, down the street. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Give me a reality check on the deli. And right. so uh, I just wasn't interested in doing that. And I had the opportunity to get out of my contract. And so decided to go ahead and, and do it. I feel like nothing ventured, nothing gained. And I think that if you look at the political climate and the media climate, there was never a better time. There would never be a better time to go and try to start something like this. So that was the idea behind it. Is let's go out and let's see what we can do in terms of creating content that speaks to a lot of these very important issues and see what happens. And how's that been going so far? What's the response kind of been? I know you've kind of built a little team of reporters. You got a lot of new stuff going on. How's that all going? It's going well. You know, we are growing every single month. We see our content becoming more and more viral all the time. In fact, um, Rush Limbaugh just picked up some of our stuff this past week, and some people called me up and said, "Hey, Rush Limbaugh is talking about your stuff." And that was kind of cool, you know, just to see other people becoming exposed to it. The other thing that's exciting is we're about to launch our truth and media content onto Hulu and to Amazon. And so we're very excited about that because, again, it exposes a bigger audience to some of these concepts, some of these ideas. So the idea that we could do a report on, you know, the Rethink 9-11 campaign or we can do something on Vaccine Court and get that onto Hulu 
I think speaks volumes as to the ability that we have to be able to communicate some very important concepts in a responsible way and in a professional way, but that can affect, you know, a lot of folks. Yeah, and I think that speaks to the future of not just journalism, but media in general, just um, directly delivering content to consumers. I haven't had a cable uh, contract in several years. I watch my Ben Swan on my little Roku device, and it's great. That's where I do everything. You know, one criticism I see a lot out there of your work is that people kind of claim that you, quote unquote, cater to conspiracy theorists. Now, you've done some stories uh, back on Reality Check. You did some segments on the Batman shooting, as well as the Sandy Hook shooting. And more recently, as you mentioned there, you've done stories about vaccine courts, which I had never even heard of before your report. Also, of course, 9-11. You did a report called Rethink 9-11 on the 9-11 Truth Movement. So let's just start with the, the kind of that general theory that you that you cater to conspiracy theorists. How would you respond to that criticism? Well, I think that that's an unfair criticism, first of all, because I think that the smear, and I, I would refer to it as a smear, of people being conspiracy theorists basically grabs up this enormous swath of the population and says anyone who does not believe whatever they're told by media is crazy. And anyone who does not believe whatever they're told by their government is crazy. Now, that's a ridiculous statement to make, right? So when you start immediately taking all these people and saying, well, they're all conspiracy theorists. Well, you can believe in a conspiracy over here and believe in a conspiracy over here and they have no relation to each other and and totally different conspiracies. And you're all thrown into the same group together. They try to put Bigfoot and UFOs with maybe a, a legitimate investigation into you know something that's recently happened that we all know. Like, like the Gulf of Tonkin incident, right? So you have this incident that gets us into the Vietnam War. Is that a conspiracy theory? No, that was a, a real incident that never happened that helped to launch us into a war that cost us you know thousands of U.S. soldiers' lives. It basically put an entire generation into this horrible situation that we find them in today. And it was based on a lie. Now, that's not because crazy people, you know, don't believe what the government tells them. It really happened. And yet, like you said, but that's not the same as a Bigfoot or a UFO thing, right? So, again, it's – got to watch out for some of the language that's used. So when people start talking about conspiracy theorists or the conspiracy theory crowd, I mean, look, I was called a conspiracy theorist in 2011 because I did a reality check. One of my conspiracy reality checks was on how Tea Party folks in Ohio said that they were being targeted by the IRS. Hmm. And I was told I was crazy by people in my own newsroom. They said, you're nuts. And these people are nuts. They're a bunch of tinfoil hat people who think that everyone's out to get them. Never politically target anyone. I mean, come on. Exactly. (laughs) IRS would never pick on the Tea Party people. They don't even care about the Tea Party people. Well, of course, that all turns out to be untrue. And it turns out that, yeah, in fact, they were targeting these groups. Those people weren't conspiracy theorists. Those were people who said, here is something that's happening to us. And would the government have said at the time, we're not targeting them? Of course. Would they have said these people are crazy? Of course. And lots of folks would have said that. What they came to me with was, we are being targeted. Here's what we see happening. And we just want to tell our story. And that's what I did was I gave them a chance to tell their story. Of course, a year later, we find out it's all true. It's In fact, it's much worse than we had originally thought that it was. That's not catering to a conspiracy crowd. So that's important, first of all. Second of all, I would say this, that like, for instance, the vaccine court issue. You know, that's a really important one because vaccine court is a very real thing. It's not a conspiracy. Vaccine court is is a very real thing. And vaccine court is how families with kids who are injured by being given vaccines are supposed to be able to direct any kind of legal action. Okay, so if you go and watch our vaccine court piece, 
you know, we don't go into crazy wild theories. We're just explaining to you how the system works, which most people have no idea how it works. Most don't. And I have a friend of mine, by the way, who's this guy in New York who's he's not a libertarian. He's very much a Democrat, not into any conspiracy stuff at all. But he saw the piece and he called me up and he says, when I saw your piece, I watched it at work. He said, I went home and I sat my wife down in front of the computer and I watched it with her. And he said it was great. He said, I had no idea that that even existed. First of all, he says, I didn't know you could be injured by a vaccine, and I didn't know that we had a special court set up for families who had kids that way because they can't sue. Instead, if you ask people, what does Ben Swan think about this? They'd say, no, no, Ben did a piece about how um, vaccines cause autism. That's <laughs> what they would tell you, but that's not what the piece is about. But they, because they want to quickly lump everything together, it's much easier to smear people by just throwing you into a camp and saying, oh, you're clearly of this mindset or this line of thinking, and therefore I can discount you. So just to recap this vaccine court thing, so if someone does believe they're injured by a vaccine or what have you, they they cannot actually sue through the regular legal channels. Is that no. right? They have to go to the special, you know, special vaccine court. You have to That's go to, so to a special vaccine court through HHS in order to be able to be heard. It's a, it was set up by Congress in 1986. And here's the thing. You only get three years. So if my child is injured when the child is, let's say, you know, six months old, I only have until that child is three years and six months old to be able to go to vaccine court and prove damage to my child. I can't wait till my child is six or seven or eight and say, clearly there's something wrong here. The other thing that a lot of people discount about vaccine court is I, as a parent, cannot testify in vaccine court on behalf of my child. I cannot be perceived as a witness because I am considered a biased witness. So anything that I see in terms of I say, my child was absolutely, they were functioning fine, motor skills were fine, um, response to everything was fine, you know, they were given this vaccine, and and that's not the case anymore. I saw it change. And some parents, by the way, will say they see a change within 24 to 48 hours immediately after this child is given a vaccine. But I, as a parent, am considered prejudiced, so I'm not allowed to testify. So instead, people will come in and say, well, this child was, there was probably something wrong with the child beforehand. Even though they've never even seen the kid before. So that's kind of how the system is set up. It's a very strange system that is completely gamed to support big pharma. And again, this isn't conspiracy stuff, but people don't even want to bother to be educated before they criticize the story. And they'll say, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He just thinks that autism is caused by vaccines. And they discount a very important story that's affecting millions of families in this country. Now, Ben, before we let you go, I want to touch on, you know, I guess kind of the biggest conspiracy theory you've even ever covered at all. And that is, of course, 9-11 and the 9-11 truth movement. Last year, you did a piece on Rethink 9-11. You know, there's these groups that meet every year in New York City. They're active all year and they're promoting, I guess, what many would call conspiracy theories regarding the events of 9-11. So, you know, were you hesitant to do this report in the first place? And why do you think 9-11 is actually a topic worthy of covering? First of all, yes, I was very hesitant to cover it because because you immediately get smeared as being a, a quote-unquote truther, which, by the way, that's just a phrase that really rubs me the wrong way. When you refer to someone who <laughs> is pursuing truth as a negative now, thing. Why is that a bad thing? I've never problem. understood that. <laughs> right. But look, I was hesitant to do it. But when we launched the project, people specifically asked, will you cover 9-11? And I said, I will cover it because I think we have this phrase that we use that we're fearless, investigative, grassroots journalism. And the fearless part of it comes, as far as I'm concerned, comes in when you say, I am willing to talk about any issue. Doesn't mean I'm going to reach the conclusion you hope I will reach, but I'm willing to talk about any issue. 
the reason we covered Rethink 9-11 was because of a couple things that I thought were newsworthy. Number one, there was a global campaign that raised a quarter of a million dollars to place signs in cities all over the world. That is newsworthy in and of itself. Even if you don't agree with what they're putting up, it's newsworthy. Remember a few years ago when they did the billboard campaign that was signed by God that was all over the country and it would say a phrase and it would say it was signed by God? Well, TV stations all over the country covered that. That was a big news story. People thought that was newsworthy, but they don't think it's newsworthy that people crowdsourced a quarter million dollars to put up signs that say a third building fell on 9-11. So that was first. Second of all, it was newsworthy to me because among those locations was Times Square where they put this up. And they put up this thing pointing out that there was a third building that came down. And polling shows that most people don't even know, don't even remember there was a third building. And when they see video of it, most people think when they watch the video that it's a controlled demolition. They do not think that it was caused by, you know, an office fire. Number three, there are now at the time there were 2000 architects and engineers, professional architects and engineers, who had signed on to say that the way that the NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, the way that NIST claims Building 7, World Trade Center 7, came down is impossible. That's newsworthy in and of itself. When 2,000 – now, people will say, but that's only a fraction of all the architects in the world. Well, <laughs> that's probably true. It's still 2,000 people who do this for a living who say this was not possible. And finally, it was newsworthy to me because it was architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth who through a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request, were able to get a hold of the documents and the blueprints of the building. And based upon those blueprints, were able to prove that what NIST claimed caused that building – World Trade Center 7, to fall down. What they claimed caused it to fall down, which was the the girders were not in place. They had come off their seating, and basically the building wasn't secured properly. That that claim was untrue. Now, when you as a professional engineer say this is impossible, and there are 2,000 of you, and you do a FOIA request, and you say that the scientific explanation that NIST gave for how that building fell down was based on something that's untrue, based on, on the blueprints of the building, that is worthy of a journalist to cover. And now people will criticize and they say, oh, no, you're just getting the 9-11 crowd and, and you're just trying to fire these people up. And it was irresponsible to even talk about it. But here's what's interesting. I have not had one person who has been critical of it who's been able to show me how we were incorrect in what we talked about. They just don't think we should talk about it. But no one has been able to say to me, hey, listen, scientifically what you said and what you allowed these people to say was irresponsible because this is why they are incorrect. Not one person has been able to say that. I don't know, Ben. You sound like a pretty crazy conspiracy theorist. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) We definitely appreciate your work, Ben. We appreciate you going out there and not being afraid to tackle this stuff. I mean, we uh, one of our contributors, Joe Beck, he he asked me, hey, I want to – just publish a little piece on 9-11. He kind of linked to your story and just wanted to point out a few things. And I even sat back for a minute and said, geez, I don't know. I mean, I, I want to let him post it, but, you know, do I want to have the conspiracy stuff going? And finally, I, I, you know, I decided his piece was fair and I had a little editor's note saying, like, I don't, I'm not reaching any conclusions here. I just feel this is an appropriate topic to at least discuss. And even just... Even with that, I got so much, oh, this is nonsense, this is crazy, this is conspiracy stuff. So, I mean, it's it's an odd response for simply asking questions, not even coming to a conclusion about something, don't you think? Well, 
No, absolutely. Look, I, the other thing is this. I, I got the most pushback I got on that 9-11 story came from libertarians. Hmm. It was libertarians who said to me, we're angry that you're talking about this. You shouldn't be talking about it because you're going to make the whole liberty movement look bad, first of all, uh, which I don't agree with. Again, I, that's ridiculous. But it was funny because someone did send a rebuttal to us and said, hey, can you post this on your social networks if you're all about truth? Here's a rebuttal to the, the some of the major conspiracy theories out there. And among them was this the conspiracy theory of Building 7 and why that conspiracy theory has been proven to be untrue. And I said, yeah, I'll put it up. But first I read what they put. And, and when you read the article, it was based upon the article debunking conspiracy theories about Building 7 was based on the incorrect information from NIST that was proven to be untrue. So even in that, like the debunking, again, it, to me, it's newsworthy. If you say this is the theory that debunks the conspiracy theory and we're debunking the debunk <laughs> and not even intentionally debunking the debunk, right. it just happens that, look, it's, it's clearly it's not true. If you close your eyes and you say, I refuse to believe that 9-11 was a conspiracy, then you don't believe 9-11 happened. Because even if you believe in the official story, which, by the way, I believe that these guys who were, who were Saudi, you know, terror suspects got onto planes. They came to the United States. They learned to fly planes without learning how to land planes. They got on the planes that morning on September 11th and they flew them into buildings. I think that did happen. OK, I'm not doubting that happened. However, that's still a conspiracy. Those guys conspired to do that. Now, I don't necessarily believe that the third building fell down because of office fires, because even NIST says that it's the evolution of office fires for that to have happened. To me, that takes more faith to believe the fire evolved and got strong enough to make the building fall down than it does to believe that we're not getting a solid investigation into how that building fell down. That, to me, is nonsense. So if you want to believe that, you want to close your eyes and pretend that, well, whatever I'm told you know, I'll just go along with, um, then that's up to you. But certainly you're not going to convince me that that's the, the uh, responsible way, especially as a journalist where our, our job involves questioning things and asking questions. I don't think it's responsible. Well, Ben, I'm certainly glad you're doing what you're doing. I'm glad that you are practicing fearless watchdog type journalism, not afraid to tackle this stuff. And you know what? I want a, a t-shirt. You can take this idea from me. It's all yours. Ben Swan debunking the debunk. Because I love that little phrase you just came up with. Uh, whether or not you're wrong with it is up to you. I don't know. Maybe it's not a seller. But Ben, before you leave us, can you just sum up all the different ways people can connect uh, both with you and with the Truth and Media Project? How can they get involved? Social media, online, the whole deal. Absolutely. You can find me at benswan.com. You can find all of our stories there. On Facebook, it's Ben Swan. Just type that in and, and we'll pop up. And on YouTube, you can find us there as well. Twitter, it's Ben Swan underscore. So would love to connect with folks and let me know that you, you heard me on this show. But we definitely want to connect. And we're actually getting ready pretty soon here to launch a second season. So we're going to be doing a crowdsource campaign for that to make it happen. And I got to tell you, Mark, we're going to get into some touchy subjects this time around too. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. And yeah, not, I'm not afraid to do it. So we're, we're going to go after it. Well, Ben, thanks again for coming on the show, and thanks for doing what you're doing. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. We'll have to have you back again sometime. Thanks, Mark. Take care. We will be back after a little break. 
Do your kids want to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and a non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? Get your copy today at meetronpaul.com, also available on Amazon. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Visit meetronpaul.com. Keep the liberty movement moving. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. <laughs> you're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This is Ben Swan, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. All right, guys, and thanks so much for joining me once again here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Hope you enjoyed my conversation there with Ben Swan today. I think he is a fantastic example of what we need more of in journalism. True, independent, investigative journalists who are willing to look into even the most difficult of subjects, unafraid to piss people off, to ruffle some feathers. You know, as far as I'm concerned, in a world as corrupt and downright insane at times as it seems, if you aren't pissing a few people off and ruffling a few feathers, you just aren't doing it right. But we try to do it right here. <laughs> if we've ruffled your feathers, you can send me some hate mail if you like. Or nice mail, that's okay too. I encourage you to email me though. Let me know what you think of the show. Give me suggestions for future guests. Tell me why you don't like me. I don't care, but I do want to hear from you. It's Mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. And be sure to come over to our site, lionsofliberty.com. And be sure to connect with us on social media, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty. Find us on Twitter, at lionsofliberty. Find us on Google+, and don't forget to keep track of the Lions of Liberty show. You can find us on iTunes. You can subscribe. Give us a rating. Give us a comment. You can add us on the Stitcher radio app. You can make your own personal little radio station. And hey, maybe Lions of Liberty can be the flagship. And of course, you can now listen to us every single Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Daily Paul Radio at dailypaulradio.com. We're super excited to be a part of the Daily Paul Radio family. And I hope you'll keep tuning back in. Keep letting me try to ruffle some feathers out there. And if you keep coming back, I'll keep ruffling. <laughs> Until next time, don't forget to live long and live free. Editing and mastering is John Dobbins.